Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Thea has snuck away to improve her language skills even more. So this week, I'm joined by indie pop star Lucy Dallas, who, and this will become relevant, is not a millennial or a witch, but is a mother. Hello, Lucy. Hello. Is that a fair description? Well, obviously I'm not a millennial because I'm far too young. For yeah, that. or old. Uh, one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> I am a mother. Yes. I may well be a witch, oh. but I am certainly not letting on under these circumstances. So that's as far as right. I will go. All right, all right. Well, we shall see. You'll see its relevance shortly. We're just coming to the end of the TLS spring sale at the moment, but you have a couple more days to get an outrageously cheap subscription. Google it and tuck in. But coming up on this week's show... Why do we hold mothers and motherhood in such ambivalence, both as an idealised state and somehow responsible for all the world's ills? Ruth Skirr will join us for this Freudian nightmare. We extracted a bit of Madeleine Miller's book Circe a couple of weeks ago in the TLS. Lucy Dallas sat down with Madeleine in the TLS office this week to discuss making hits from myths. And millennials... You can't live with them and you're not allowed to throw avocados at them. Samuel Earle has reviewed a fascinating book on this fascinating social phenomenon and he'll be in the studio. Did you know that I was a millennial, Lucy? I did. I By did, some reckoning. I did in fact know that, yeah. Because yeah, I yeah. believe millennials are born in the 1980s. Yeah, but do you think you qualify really? No, I obviously don't. Matt, our producer, was born in 1981. He's not a millennial. You're not a millennial. I'm not by a any millennial, no, no. By, no. by no stretch of all right, that term. All right, all right. Uh, I'm not a millennial, no. So we can we can discuss them dispassionately. Should we try and do that? Yeah, but okay. with compassion. Deal.
It's not especially new, the idea that the youth are misunderstood and maligned or that they have a set of values and expectations different to those of their parents. The notion of a generational clash, as Samuel Earle puts it this week, has been around for generations. But with millennials, those born somewhere in the 80s and 90s, there does seem to be something for them to clash about. Here's a British statistic for you that I mentioned in my book. A 30-year-old today is worth 21% less than in 1983, a 60-year-old is worth twice as much. Prospects for young people today are not especially rosy. As Sam puts it, longer school hours, more protective parenting, more competition, less playtime, proliferating debt, wages are weaker, careers more precarious, and wealth inequality soars. Yes, you might say, but of avocado on toast is delicious. Sam has reviewed Malcolm Harris's Kids These Days, which makes no mention of avocados, and joins Lucy and me in the studio now. Sam, hello. Hiya. So, millennials, should they be paranoid, or are they the most, or and are they the most overanalyzed generation ever? Well, we are we're certainly the most, and I say we as, as, a, as a millennial you're, myself. You're a proper, I see, yes. I'm a pseudo-millennial, <laughs> so I was born in 1980. Lucy, whose age we won't disclose, is definitely not a millennial. It's been going on at me. I am far too old. Far to too old for a millennial. <laughs> so I, that's fine. When did, what was your birthday? Uh, 29th of August, 1992. So, you, oh, so you're a real, almost um, a late millennial. In the zone. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. So as a millennial yourself, are you over-analysed? Well, we certainly are overanalyzed and overburdened with uh, problems that are affecting society as a whole. And I think, in a sense, uh, you know, obviously millennials do have uh, do receive a lot of attention, a lot of critical attention. Uh, do you feel that as a millennial? Do you feel that when you open because newspapers are also written by fifty-year-old men? Completely. Generally. My response and, and the response of uh, most of uh, I think my generation is is largely to laugh because it is blaming uh, millennials for structural problems and so there's a there's a kind of endless uh you know kind of barrage of you know, as you mentioned like millennials spending too much on frivolous things millennials aren't having enough sex many millennials aren't uh, no it's true it? one in six one in six uh, people don't lose their virginity until the age yeah, of 26 now what, what on earth how could that be the business of any other generation, let well, alone the older generation. They live, in, who... they, they live in a hyper-sexualised world. They, mm. they grow up in a world of, of shareable pornography. So millennials uh, have grown up as adolescents, some of them, for the first time ever where pornography, particularly for young men, has been very, very mm. accessible in a way that it wasn't, say, for me when I grew up. And that's changed their perspective on sex. And so... They're not having so. There's an argument. They they are more reluctant to have sex because of uh, the grotesque expectations that now exist around it. That's sure, that's, 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 that's certainly that's that's uh, and it, but it, I think that's what makes talking about millennials uh, so difficult is that there's been such a wide number of uh, new trends that have emerged over the last twenty years. You can we can talk about kind of pornography becoming more common and easily accessible, but there's also new forms of communication and socialising that, that encourages or, or that it's more suited to, to staying um, separated. And, you know, I remember when I was young, we had MSN and you'd talk to your friends from school and that would kind of be the highlight of your evening. But that's now become far more common. As you're a, connected as a, all the time. I think it feels really keenly that the first time in human history that when you shut the door, you can't keep the world out. Yeah, well, you can, Certainly. actually. You can 
keep the world out, but but the world can stay on. You can turn it off. You can, but it's very hard to turn it off. I know, I, but... I, I imagine when you're growing up with MSN, but now if you're growing up with Facebook yeah. or Snapchat and you're not there because your mum exactly. says don't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. It's no, very it's, hard. It's very hard to do yeah. that. And that's the, and this also feeds into this. We can never Im- essentially blame millennials for, let's say, the fact that they're they're more likely to talk more openly on the internet than face to face, or that they are increasingly drawn to their mobile phones rather than the real world. Because the other important thing is that th- these technologies, which so saturate everyone's life, but but especially millennials, are uh, designed in a way that's that's meant to be addictive and encourages uh more and more use and to blame millennials for essentially being uh you know hooked on them as though it's something innate to our personalities misses the mark on essentially what makes a lot of these technologies tick rather than millennials themselves i think and i I think there's two things aren't there there's there's one is that that, that you can analyze a generation i mean which may may not be annoying to the generation but then it moves very quickly into blame Mm. and i think the older generation has got no business turning around and saying well why are you doing this because as as sam says a lot of it is structural but the devil's advocate would be 30 or 40 years ago there were freedoms that didn't exist for for, for people yeah. that the people who are of a younger generation do enjoy you know ability to and the reason why I think people get hung up on avocado on toast and coffees is that 50 years ago people very often had less disposable income income was more bound up in different ways mm-hmm. it seems to me there wasn't so much of an ability for a 20 year old to go out for dinner as often we live in a much more consumable culture don't we Sam and that, that yeah. presumably that's where I think a lot of this angst come from because they people say oh if you're moaning so much about not having any money how come I can yeah. see you buying a coffee? When when I was a kid, we didn't go out for coffee. So yeah. it looks like you're being frivolous. I think what uh, a lot of people have, have trouble accepting or thinking is that the world becomes better and worse at the same time. Yeah. And there, are, there have been huge improvements. And I don't think anyone wants to turn back the clock and, and go back to the, the 60s or 70s or, or kind of whatever. But what we do want is, is to look back at, at some of the advantages that you enjoyed and and hopefully be able to combine them with the advantages that we have and, yeah. and like yeah, because especially you know uh, one thing that millennials and in general younger people have is very common is a uh, much more progressive views on let's say uh, on sexuality yeah. kind of uh, you know on, on politics of race of sex and we can see firsthand the, the, the advances that have been made in, in those respects. But it's just a shame that those advances have also kind of uh, run along next to work becoming far more precarious and, and, and yeah. uh, debt becoming so much more common, of course. And again, you know, university has become, you know, more kind of universal in its scope and kids are getting to go to university who never would have had the opportunity before but one of the things that all all um, all students now graduate with is is a huge amount of debt, which, and I also don't think we can underestimate the the, the shadow that debt kind of casts on the future mm. and makes you anxious yeah. for in your day to day life. And things like housing seems to me to be the classic one. I, I talk to my parents about this, who are classic baby boomers, I think, and you know they could buy a house. I was, you know, people could buy houses for ten grand. And they were earning three grand a year. Mm-hmm. And so their house was three times their salary. 
now if a person earns 30 grand a year which is better than average mm. they ain't going to get a house for 90 grand no mm. and in london that's certainly not the case yeah. so there's been a divorce a fundamental economic divorce between yeah. things that were verities were things that our parents generation could guarantee themselves that is not available yeah. to you, Sam. That's never. You're never going to afford a house three times your salary. Yeah. It's going to be very hard, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Not just you, but just no, generally. No, no, of course, the of average course. person yeah. is going to struggle. The numbers isn't the same. The numbers aren't the same. The numbers don't work, do they? Yeah, no, no the multipliers And with the that, though, brings yeah. debt. Yeah. And your generation is expected to say, we can live with debt. Yeah. And do you feel that maybe you, you don't want to? Maybe well, you don't we want don't, to. And I think one of the great ironies of, of the uh, the current government, and which has been the case for the past 10 years, is them saying on the uh, state level how, how important it is that, that Britain must live within its means yeah. mm. and get rid of all debt. Yeah. While the, 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 the consequence of that has been burdening students with so much debt. Uh, and that, that, that mixed message of debt is bad and debt is necessary is, I don't know, it kind of... It's also, it's also a bit of a kind of guinea pig generation because you're, you've been saddled with that debt for the yeah. first time. And as you say, with the, the, um, with the technology thing, and I completely agree about that the, the, those, the things like the stuff on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff was explicitly designed... Mm to be addictive and now you're getting quite a lot of the people a reasonable percentage of the people who designed it are now coming out and saying actually this is working far too well we didn't want it we didn't yeah. really want it to kind yeah. of take over the world but but you're very much there isn't a model for for how yeah. to behave with is that somebody gives you something addictive you get addicted is yeah. there a backlash you know? i wonder whether do you think that by the time this generation is 40 they will be living in homes with have no which have no internet access or the f- smartphone will be abandoned in favor of a an old fashioned phone that simply receives calls or uh because something is going to have to change there's a great internet scandal Did you see this not scandal but furore about doorbells Are you aware of this yes yes uh, someone just tweeted uh I, I never use a doorbell. Yeah. I don't use doorbells. I find that, and if someone rings my door, I don't answer it if they ring the doorbell because my friends only communicate via their smartphone. Right. And doorbells are basically completely anathema to a certain generation. Do you feel that, by the way, Sam? Do, do you use a, do you, are you terrified uh, of the doorbell? I'm not, no, I, I don't actually share that, that aspect. So. <laughs> but it's a thing, and so, but the, are we going to have to, do you think there'll be a backlash where a sort of anti technology takes over? I don't think that that is what will happen i think and i don't think it's ever kind of helpful to completely reverse something's happened and like i said to things get better and worse at the same time there are advantages from having these technologies which which we cherish and which we love and and like twitter you know has has got some some very kind of hilarious sides to it and and the 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 way in which we kind of engage and interact with each other through uh the like memes and those kind of concise tweets uh has in a way brought like a new element of like language i think to our lives and of humor which i i would not want to lose it's about having uh conversations about how we can make these technologies work for us more rather than having to switch off them uh, completely. You review Malcolm Harris's book, Kids, these days. Does he have any solutions? From the review, it sounds like he was very good at analysing all of the problems we've just talked about, and then it got to the bit, and now the solution is, and there was a sort of embarrassed cough. (laughs) Well, uh, he he describes himself in his author's bio as, I think, a uh, revolutionary anarchist. 
So he has a uh, the. I'm afraid the solution is society must be uh, turned on its head. And it's quite an old-fashioned solution. Yeah. Well, and there is a line in it where he says, uh, which I mentioned in the review, either we become fascists or revolutionaries, one or the other. And reading it kind of in, in 2018, it, it did have a bit of a quaint kind of ring to it. Mm. Uh, and, 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 so and he doesn't have a solution then, basically. That, that's no solution. Yeah, well, I, think, I think one thing he, he, he is right about is that it isn't easy to come up with a kind of like surface solutions to this problem. And I think it also isn't helpful to see it as a young versus old divide, really, which is what you see a lot on the front pages of newspapers and magazines is young versus old, millennials versus baby boomers. Uh, but what, it is. It isn't because there's because there's a lot of, uh, you know, over 65s who are, who are not in an envious position, who, who millennials would not want to swap places with, or inequality doesn't work as simple as as, yeah. as young versus old. Mm. It doesn't, although if you have been alive um, for the last 40 years and you bought a property in the 1960s and 1970s, you are far more asset-rich than people of a younger generation. And actually, if you do look at the division, I mean, you're absolutely right, there are lots of people who are, are older who have terrible conditions but actually the number of pensioners in relative poverty has fallen in the last yeah. 10 years because they have triple lock pensions that have gone above in, uh, inflation and they have properties which have uh, accrued massively in value neither of those things are going to be open to millennials so there is something I mean you're right it can be, yeah. but you think it's unhelpful to see it as a battle of the generations I, I really don't think it's helpful to see it as a battle of generations I think that the, the, in a sense, um, you know, millennials and and old people suffer. They, they suffer in a slightly similar way, and in, in the sense that they get. But we, I think, we're both spoken about in a slightly uh, othering sense. And and yeah. it's there's there's a you can forget that we're the same people in a way. It, it like we're gonna uh, millennials will become old people and and face a lot of these problems, and millennials are also the children of these same people, yeah. and they're. There's not a neat divide between the two. They're, in many ways, they're shared problems, and I think that's, if there's going to be solutions, it's that's how it will come. Is looking at it as a as, as a societal uh, structural problem rather than, you know, baby boomers have stolen the future of millennials or like millennials are jealous of baby boomers' success. Uh, it, it's seeing it in its kind of, I don't know, it's holistic. holistic just just finally, did you see this story in The Guardian this week? The Resolution Foundation suggested giving £10,000 yes. to every 25-year-old. Um, it's hard to see how that would actually shift the dial. I mean, it'd be very nice in lots of ways, but it, it doesn't seem to me that that would alter any structural positions at all. Again, I, I completely agree with that. I think that... Uh, when millennials are uh, so so baggage with debt, so I think the average student comes out with fifty thousand pounds of debt for a degree, which is the highest in the world, higher than America. Fees can wa- waver more in America, but the average rate is about half that for a student in America. Ten thousand pounds, whether it's tied to housing or education. Is, is is nothing and it's about what kind of a work work is available to young people what kind of possibility is there for growth within within that career and yeah and and then what housing is available as well so i i think ten thousand pounds 
you know, although I, I love the sound of that. Yeah. Uh, and as long as they bring it in before my 26th birthday, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't think that will go anywhere near to addressing what is a, uh, you know, a, a, a very broad divide that cuts across society. You went here when Lucy said it's, it's about addressing the whole issue with compassion. That's what you said very at the, at the beginning of the, the show. Compassion. And yeah. addressing it all with compassion. That, that's, a good, that's a good sentiment to leave it on. Mm. Uh, Samuel L, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It is Mother's Day in America this week. Ruth Skur tells us in her piece that it was started by a social activist, Anna Marie Jarvis, to reunite families divided by the Civil War. The tradition was carried on and promoted by her daughter, Anna, who then watched in horror as it grew into an exercise in commercialism to sell flowers, cards and sweets. Anna was arrested in 1925, protesting against the celebration she had campaigned for. Ruth is here to, uh, to join us. Hello, Ruth. How are you doing? Hi, I'm fine, Lucy. Hi. Isn't that I'm the just way of the world, by the way. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. you get arrested campaigning <laughs> against. Yeah. Well, this is what I wanted to ask. Do, do, do you think this little story tells us something? You can say no, it doesn't, if you like, about public expectations of motherhood and the absolute impossibilities of living up to them. Well, I think it's certainly a very poignant personal story because Anna was desperate to commemorate her mother and to carry on her work, and she set up this. Mother's Day tradition and then she wanted to control it and make it faithful to what she thought her mother deserved and it's it's an incredibly personal story that gets projected onto a public commercial festival Um, and at the end of her life she ends up in in a nursing home basically which is partly paid for by the the florist who have made an enormous amount of money mm. out of the the commemoration of Mother's Day that she has then turned against. So I think what it shows us is the incredibly contorted and, and very complex feelings that the relationship evokes. But is it not more, though, about just how 
the commercialization takes place in the modern world anyway. I mean, this does, this doesn't seem to me to be a judgment about mothers or motherhood. Is this this is just that if you find something that becomes marketable, it gets marketed. Well, sure, because exactly the same happened with Easter, which, you know, becomes taken over, or Christmas, or all of those old um, religious festivals that become about about spending money, effectively. But I still think that um, the attempt by this one woman to actually try and protest that and control it and, and make it something pure that was worthy of, of celebrating her, her ideal of motherhood um, is, is quite unusual. Is there, um, you reviewed lots of three books, one of them is Jacqueline Rose's Mothers, an essay on love and cruelty. Is the mm. thesis of that that mothers are wrongly idealised? We expect too much of them and are, and are therefore disappointed endlessly when they don't deliver the impossible? That's exactly right. So she's trying to deconstruct all of the ideals and expectations that are projected onto the role, on onto mothers. Um, and she's also claiming that now, especially, specifically, um, where we're living in times of, of more awareness of borders and a sort of a, a greater sense of, of excluding the foreign, um, mothers are targets. For, for, for a lot of what she calls actually sadism. Why is that? Because they are um, simultaneously relied upon to be producing children and also blamed for putting the strain on social resources at the same time. Yeah, and they're also blamed for if their children don't behave perfectly, which, of course, children they often don't. don't. <laughs> Exactly. As we all yeah. know. They, they're expected to do the work of socialisation, to, to do a lot of education, to, to, to basically you know, prepare their, their, their children for, for being citizens, for being adults. But is that not happening less now, perhaps, where, where women are now... You know, 100 years ago, women's role in society was often restricted to motherhood, whereas you can make a case, can you now, that... Women are, of course, recognised in every other aspect of society. So is the pressure on them less or is it just actually an accumulation of pressures? I think it's more, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's more to to combine, isn't there? There's the expectation that you could both be, you know, a, a very a very powerful professional person, that you could also earn money, that you would also do all this work for bringing your child up on, on the side somehow. Um, I was wondering, Ruth, can you tell us about how Jacqueline Rose, in her book, presents the problems of the lioness versus the inculcator of civic virtue? Yes, that's wonderful. I mean, she's pointing out, uh, she's actually um, going back to Virginia Woolf there, who is interested in the way in which people say they're they're focused upon children, but actually it's just their child. Um, there's something very territorial um, and primitive about their relationship with mm. their children, which, of course, you know, defines their children against other people's children. But at the same time, um, as, as Jacqueline Rose is, is arguing in the book, there is also the expectation that you civilise your children and, and that you inculcate um, the virtues that, that society requires. So there's a, a conflict there uh, at the very nature of, of the role as it's conceived. Yeah. Uh, presumably this is linked to the idea of tiger mums. 
I think yes. tiger, well, yes, but but the tiger mums don't so much defend their young, as it were, do they? The tiger mums kind of attack on their behalf. Uh, well, but they also sort of attack the children because yeah. they sort of whip them into yeah. shape, don't they? And I'm I'm not sure the tiger mums um, are uh, very interested in civic virtue either. I no, mean, I think they no. they want their most competitive. Um, yeah child and and they want to win i mean we've all seen yeah. this at, at the uh, the school game we have <laughs> hang on a second are we are we just accepting on faith that neither of you two are tiger mums i'm oh, not sure i'm not, not. Yeah, i'm not sure we've, we, we, <laughs> we've, we've, not. No, we've tested that does a tiger mum admit well, to being a tiger also, mum? can i say it's a very very sexist term because there's plenty of tiger dads yeah. I have seen plenty. Yeah. You can see them. You know the old cliche about the dads on the touchline on Saturday morning? Yeah. But that's an accepted cliche. Why is there not a phrase for that? Cause, because society is sexist, Dick. That's why. Yeah, well, is that true? Is that, I mean, is, is, that a, is that a fair point there? You're sort of saying that's what we're sort of picking on. Yes, yeah, it's kind of the Jack and Rose point. It's easy to pick on, pick on the mum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, but perhaps you'd like to to have a come up with a term, Stig, for the uh, well, uh, the phenomenon in the in the dad. Tiger dad. <laughs> that, <laughs> didn't take, that didn't take me very long. Sounds very cuddly. It does. It sounds quite nice. Does it? Um, uh, you talk about a bit later on in the piece, and I'm interested in this, uh, Ruth, about mothers in literature. Mm. Uh, and not there's, there's mothers in literature which you mentioned, like Medea being a sort of uh, mm. a classical one, but also the mothers of literary figures. That how is the maternal revealed in literature do you think there's a sort of maternal influence on writers that they're constantly grappling with well i think writers unsurprisingly are extremely articulate when they choose to be about some of these very deep and um, fundamental relations so one of the examples that i touch on pieces is philip larkin um and uh, i mean unusually perhaps um, maybe the last uh, of that generation to, to experience this, but I mean, sort of in receipt of at least one letter a week from his mother for for a good thirty years, um, and so there's an incredible sense uh, in that correspondence of of her ongoing influence on him and the way in which that that shapes his his life and and then it comes through um in 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 his writing and the other um example that that, that i included is is in mccune it's yeah. absolutely moving piece about i mean it begins that him saying you know i i don't write like my mother but for years i spoke like her and then he goes on to analyze the effect that her language has has had on on his writing, which is odd because there's a lot of absent mothers in his novels. I mean, very often the the mother figure, if you think the cement garden, she dies. If you think uh, in Atonement, there's that mother who always has migraines. Yeah. The mother in on Chesil Beach, uh, one of yeah. them is one of them Who's is been is, hit by the train, bit, hit, door. hit by a train, and the other one um, is kind of allows yeah. effectively her husband to abuse. Florence mothers in in his novels aren't necessarily there are they no but I don't think we can go I mean I wouldn't want to suggest that you can go from you know the biographical straight to 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 the fiction I think what what really interested me actually about his essay was the way he was talking about the the influence on his language and on his his writing and the sense that she was and class is extremely extremely important in McEwen and, and he really does pin that down to the way in which she was very hesitant even to speak to 
people who she perceived to be of even just a slightly higher social standing than yeah. him. I, I interviewed him yesterday, actually, on, on Front Row. And, oh, um, wow. It got, um, the bit got cut because it was a pre-recorded thing. But I was talking to him about children. And he was saying, as a kid growing up, working-class Scottish family, there was never any affection showed towards children, really. There, there weren't many cuddles. There weren't, and now hmm. children are the centre of existence and I think that's that's changed even in, I, I grew up in a very loving family but the children fitted around the adults whereas yeah. I know categorically from my family we fit around the needs of the children you know we're constantly making sure they're happy and doing stuff for them and that yeah. does seem to be that does seem to be a shift that children are becoming more prominent in, in culture possibly than ever before but I think one of the really interesting things in the Jacqueline Rose book is to point out that that itself can be a real pressure on the child. Um, you know, mm. If your parents are organising your lives around your happiness and you're a normal adolescent who actually isn't that happy or, yeah. you know, a young undergraduate or, or, or going in your early 20s and struggling to find your way, the sense that everything has been arranged around you being happy can be stressful in itself it's yeah, a good point well it's not an entirely cheery piece this is it? I, thought, <laughs> I thought oh so said to mention me oh ruth ruth's writing a long piece for mother's day in america oh, i'll be nice that'll be a celebration yeah. of matters yeah, maternal yeah just finally then are we to conclude that, that, that it's pretty wretched being a mother in modernity no no, I don't think so. I mean, uh, you know... You didn't convincing, but go on. <laughs> I think it's a big improvement on being a mother earlier on, right? Mm, I mean, I think we amen. have to be very, very great well, for, for that. But I think, I think it's... I think the Rose uh, book is challenging because it wants to say, actually, let's be careful about what we're expecting and let's think about that from, from a fresh perspective. Ruth Skirr, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, I, I do think that you, when I was talking to McEwen, it just occurred to me that the whole there's been a, such a shift in child centrism. Mm, I think that's true, and I'm sure that it just it just moves the pressure around, doesn't it? I think it is quite a modern thing, um, as as Ruth said in a piece, and as you said, the the idea of here it's mothers, but really it's kind of parents, isn't it? It's wanting their child to be happy. I, I was reading in another book. I think it was Viv Albertine's book. Yeah. That that her mum was kind of going. Everyone says they want their kids to be happy. She said, "I, I want her mum wanted her to be, what did she say? To lead an interesting life, and she wants her to be kind of fully alive in her own life." But nobody used to say, "I just want you to be happy, darling." Yeah. No, it just wasn't the thing. That's not what people said. And I suppose, in a way, I mean, it sounds, it sounds simple. You don't want them to be unhappy, no. but maybe that is an added pressure and. Maybe it's you. I don't know about should. I don't believe in should in terms of parenting. But maybe one could say, "I just want you to be you." Or oh, heartwarming. <laughs> yeah, just be you. That that would go on a Mother's Day card. You're <laughs> just a you gross go. sentimentalist. I Lucy. am. Yeah, absolutely. Madeline Miller studied classics and taught Latin and Greek while writing her first novel, The Song of Achilles, which explores the relationship between that great warrior and Patroclus, who, as Homer tells us in the Iliad, accompanied him to Troy and was killed by Hector, setting off the events that led to the fall of Troy. Her second novel, Circe, deals with another Homeric character, who's also appeared in Ovid and other later classical stories, this time from the Odyssey. Circe is a mysterious witch goddess who turns Odysseus's men to swine, but then lives with him for a year and gives him invaluable help. 
Madeline Miller has inhabited Circe and given us her story, and she joined us to talk about witches, women, and who owns the narrative. Madeline, thank you for talking to us. Can I start with what sounds like a simple question, and I'm sure it isn't, and you'll tell me that it isn't. Is Circe the first witch? Yes, she's the first witch in Western literature, although um, that's just in the in literature. I'm sure that, you know, there have been women who have been called witches for centuries, probably going all the way back um, as far as as far as recorded history. Uh, as I started looking into what it meant to be a witch and exploring Circe and her witchcraft and how she relates to the history of, of witches, um, what I have come to really believe is that the word witch is what we call a woman who has more power than we think she should have. So I think that is eternal um, because there have always been powerful women and always been people telling them that they can't have that power. Yes, um, and she, she, but she is powerful. Well, she's powerful in all sorts of ways, isn't she? But one of the sources of her power comes from not magic. So, well, it is magic, but, it, but it's also of her own making. She's very, it doesn't just come to her from the sky. She has to work at it. She works out how to use it, and she, she uses herbs and she, she does it herself as it were yes and that was one of the things that I loved about her witchcraft is that you know she's born a goddess um, so she has some very very minor divine powers um, she's the she's a nymph so she's the lowest of the low in the ancient Greek hierarchy uh, barely really any any power there but her witchcraft is very powerful and it's all things that she does herself she learns how to do so it's the skill with the herbs as you said with poisons um, she has a kind of a, an ability with animals as well um, and I loved the fact that it was something that she created she wills into being it's not something she's born with it's something that she chooses to chooses to make sorry yeah and I, I was also struck by the fact that that she has to work quite hard at it and she gets it wrong. I mean, in the beginning, she certainly she gets it wrong. She has to work it out. The stuff doesn't work. She has to, she she she. Um, it it becomes a profession. Yes, exactly. Um, one of the fascinating details that Homer gives us about Circe in the Odyssey is that she's the dread goddess or the terrifying goddess who speaks like a mortal, um, and that was a fascinating way in for me because what it implied to me is that she sort of has one foot in the world of the gods and one foot in the world of humanity um, and so I was interested in that conflict and I think she spends a lot of the book kind of negotiating what does it mean to be a god and what does it mean to be um, human or a mortal and I think that hard work is actually one of the great virtues that she learns from humanity um, gods of course particularly the Greek gods don't have to work for anything. Everything they want just comes at a snap. And, you know, they're very selfish and very self-involved, and they want what they want when they want it immediately. Um, they're a little, a little bit like toddlers, actually. Uh, and she instead goes this other route where she really hones a craft, and she comes to feel that there is um, real value and virtue in working at something and failing and trying again and trying again. And that's just one of the ways that she differentiates herself from from the other gods, it seems. Now, that your first book, The Song of Achilles, is about one of the most famous heroes of all, and we all think we know all about him. Um, and, and it is necessarily a very male story. It's just full of blokes fighting and just <laughs> doing all sorts of things. Um, and it re reminded me of, of Mary Reno's 
work quite a lot, which I mean as a great, great compliment because she's wonderful, I think. <laughs> Good. Um, and I suppose the main, or not, not the only female figure, but the main female figure there was Achilles' mother, Thetis, who was also uh, a nymph. Was it, I'm just wondering whether it was a conscious decision to focus on a woman this time, or did it come because you were interested in nymphs, because you were writing about Thetis, or was it something else? It was some of both. Um, I absolutely think that uh, working with the character of Thetis, who was one of my favorite characters to write and to explore, even though she's the antagonist for much of the book, I never saw her as a villain at all. Um, I actually found her very sympathetic. Um, and sort of she flows right into Circe because they are both nymphs. They're both these lesser, lesser goddesses. Um, and those lesser goddesses in ancient Greek myth were pretty much, they were pawns or they were prey. And, you know, even though they had this divine power, they weren't really able to control their own destiny. They were constantly being, you know, abused or passed around. And Thetis spends the entire novel working so hard to save her son's life, and she can't. She just can't. And so I wanted to look at that from, from sort of a similar perspective, um, but with this added witchcraft element. And very, very deliberately, I wanted to give voice to a female character. You know, when you've been studying these texts for a long time and working with them, of course, you can't help but notice um, that all the composers and writers of these wonderful ancient texts, with very few exceptions, are men, and the protagonists are often men as well. And so I knew when it came time for the second novel, I really wanted to give voice to a woman, and there was never any question. It was, it was always Circe. <laughs> That was Madeline Miller joining us to talk about her novel Circe, and you can hear the whole of this interview as an accompanying podcast on our feed. Isn't everyone lucky? <laughs> They'll be the judge of that. Indeed they will. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Samuel Earl, Madeline Miller and Ruth Skirr. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Did you enjoy yourself? Of course. Motherhood, witches and millennials. All of it. Um, Stig, are you going to mention all the exciting oh, things oh we're doing? Oh, God, yeah. Well, you do your bit. You're doing, you're doing the Bath Literary Festival. Yes, yeah, so Thea and I are doing what is called a live podcast. And what that and that means? Our producer told me that's an oxymoron, but yeah. <laughs> we're doing a lovely event. Yes. Which will produce as a podcast. Yes, yeah. exactly, we will. And we'll be talking to Robert Webb, the actor and comedian and writer who wrote the wonderful How Not to Be a Boy. Which you actually have read. I really have read yeah, it, I think. Genuine, yeah, genuinely. Yeah. Yeah. And the wonderful Margaret Drabble, who has written millions of wonderful books. Which you also have read. Yes, I certainly have. And uh, so we'll be talking to when them that, in Bath know? on May the 24th. Yeah. And the tier list is going to be at the Hay Festival, which I'm going to... I've got an event talking about my book which I've not mentioned, really, on <laughs> No, this you haven't. No, I should ask you about your book. How is your book? It's uh, it's <laughs> making me filled with dread when I think about it. But <laughs> oh, uh, it's called How Britain Really Works. I'm doing an event at Hay, and I'm also interviewing Ian McEwan again. again. I've interviewed him this week to talk about adaptations and writing. And I'm introducing a lecture by Simon Sharma. And if you go to the Hay Festival, you can get a free copy of the paper. It will be in the Friends Cafe. Thea's doing an event as well. So just come on and, and, and say hello to us in Bath. And then hay, which is basically the end of May, which is an unintentional rhyme. Yep. For you. Uh, well, thank you very much, Lucy. Do subscribe to the TLS if you are listening. It's chock full of goodies this week, including stuff on Dante, Neruda, and Debussy. You're more of a Debussy person, I'd say, of those of three. Of those three, I'd say yeah. Debussy every time. I'd say Dante. We are not entirely flattering about Neruda. Well, he didn't always. Um... Get it right. 
Yes, that's one way of putting it. Indeed. Uh, next week, the paper's got lots of science in it, which terrifies me to my very humanities-driven soul. So do come back and watch me struggle. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.